do this all week long. So what I wanted you to do, I'm going to ask you to stand again, because I'm going to read the word to you. The title of the message is The Great and Empowering Yoke, and it's from Matthew chapter 11, 25 through 30. The word of our Lord. At that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. Uh, My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open up our hearts and minds, Lord God. We know, Lord God, unless we come to you in faith and humility and in the Spirit, Lord God, these words are just going to fall on deaf ears, Lord. They will just never penetrate through our ears and bring us the blessing, the blessing of power, the blessing of your love, the blessing of your peace, the blessing of your joy, They will never be able to penetrate into us unless we humble ourselves before you. And Lord God, receive your word by faith. I pray that all would do that today, and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So again, we're here, Jesus is talking about a yoke. A yoke was placed upon the necks of the oxen. Uh, It was made of wood. It was made of very smooth sanded, carefully sanded wood so that it would not cut in to the oxen's necks, cause calluses, uh, cause wounds, cause pain. It was designed to make the oxen productive. It was designed to make the oxen more effective. And it was designed that two oxen could plow together and move heavy objects, pull heavy objects that humans could not pull, and that also one oxen at a time could not pull. So I want to, I want to show you something from, from oxen science. A single ox by itself can pull 5,000 pounds, but two oxen yoked together can pull 15,000 pounds. How can that be? A good pair, when equally yoked, can achieve more than they can alone. 5,000 plus 5,000 equals 15,000. That's God's math. That's God's math. Look, if you've been walking with the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been, you have no idea. How much more productive would you be if you were yoked with Jesus? It's an important question to ask yourself. How much more productive would you be in your life? You say, well, I'm really productive. Well, with Jesus, you'll be more productive. Maybe you're saying, hey, I'm just totally unproductive. With Jesus, you'll become productive. So I want to look at a a few key things that Jesus said here. First thing, the great revealing. And the word for revealing is the word apocalypse. So if you look here twice, okay, it says that this was going to be a revealing, apocalypto, a revealing, that God was going to make this great apocalypse, and Jesus was going to reveal something great. Do you understand? 
what an apocalypse is, if you've ever seen a magician, I think we're going to have a magician, a Christian magician at our Christmas party. But when the magician, what does he do? He does, what does he say when he does this? Why? He says, ta-da! What musicians have you ever seen? Remember Houdini? Houdini used to go, ta-da! That's what it is to a, a great apocalypse. It means, essentially, the removal of a veil so that something could be seen. So the last book in the Bible is the book of the Apocalypse. That's the, it's, it's the Apocalypse, the book of the Revelation. In Greek, it is the book of the Apocalypse. What is the book of the Apocalypse? Well, John gets a vision in chapter 1, and then it's a revealing, okay, or an unveiling of the future. Chapter 2 and 3 is the history of the church, seven periods of church history. And then you have the rapture of the church in chapters 4 and 5. Then you have the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period, that horrible period that will come upon the earth, 6 through 19, the second coming of the Lord, okay, in chapter 19. The millennial kingdom, 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth in chapter 20. Judgment day, the great white throne judgment. And then eternity, the new Jerusalem, chapters 21 through 22. That is a great apocalypse of the future. Jesus isn't referring to that apocalypse here. In Matthew chapter 11, what is Jesus revealing? What is he talking about? Gloria, say it out loud. Yeah, it is the great apocalypse. It is the great uncovering. It is the great revealing of God. Jesus here, Jesus here. He is the apocalypse of God, the revealing of God. Now, there's a, there's a prayer in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. It says here, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Have you ever kind of said that? God, just rip open the heavens and show yourself to us. Right? Just rip open the sky. Tear open the sky. I'm 23 years old. I'm kind of having some major faith crises in my atheism. I'm starting to question just a whole lot of things, right? How could this all have come from nothing? Right? How could a big bang create, you know, this universe where there's such tremendous order in it? Because whenever I blew up something, and I blew up a lot of things when I was a kid, it never created order, it always created disorder. And so I'm having that crisis in my uh, atheistic faith. And one night I'm coming home from, I was a part owner of a gym, and uh, I just looked up to heaven through my sunroof. I was at a, a light and I said, whatever you are, whoever you are, just reveal yourself to me. And I was hoping that God was just going to rend open the sky and just stick his head out and say, here I am. Well, to understand, understand Jesus, that is essentially what Jesus did. Jesus revealed God to us. That is the great apocalypse. It's, it's Jesus revealing God, who he is, what he's like. And you look at, you look at the, the, the scriptures, I'll, I'll quote to you a few scriptures. John 1.1, 1, 1, 
In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Logos. That's a Greek term for God. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, when I, when I put an A or a B, this is the first part of the verse, okay? If I put a B, it would have been the second part of the verse. The word here says, he is the image of the invisible God. But that is the apocalypse. Jesus is the apocalypse, essentially revealing God to us. Now, I'll give you a little theology lesson. I'm going to do a theology course here on Sunday mornings uh, coming up in the fall and take you through some theology. But there's what is called natural revelation and then there is what is called uh, specific revelation. So with natural revelation, okay, and you get a picture of natural revelation from Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Let me, let me read this to you. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So what is, what is natural revelation? If it's a windy day, you're outside, and you feel the wind, but you can't see it. You see the effect of the wind, right, swaying the limbs of the tree, blowing the leaves. I mean, it's really powerful wind. I mean, it could be blowing trees over. But you can't see the wind. But you see the effect of the wind. That, that is natural revelation when we apply this concept to God. You can't see God. But you see the effects of God. You see this vast universe that is made up of billions of solar systems like ours and our Milky Way galaxy and billions of galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy in the entire universe. You see this, I mean, it's, it's beyond us being able to wrap our little minds and being able to comprehend it, but you see this vast, vast universe and you come to the place where through reason, right, you deduce that there had to have been some thing or someone incredibly powerful that could bring this universe into being. And then you look and you notice that there are systems. Everything is systematic. There are all these systems, laws, and principles. By the way, you're an example of this. You know, your brain is more powerful than any supercomputer that's been created on this earth. You ever see the, the robots that they're creating and you're seeing them as they, you know, as they, you are more coordinated, your brain connects with, you know, through the neurosystem, with your skeletal system, with your muscles, way beyond anything that they've been able to create through robotics and computers. So we deduce from, again, what we are from the systems of the universe that not only is there some type of supernatural power or God, but that this supernatural power is incredibly intelligent. That's natural revelation. You can come, you can come to a place, I was witnessing to an Englishman back when I was in the gym business. He was this very scholarly, 
brilliant Englishman. I was talking to him and sharing with him about God, sharing with him about Jesus. And he said to me, you have to, he said, in his English accent, he said, you have to be an idiot to not believe that there is a supreme being. And he goes, he climbed up to, he didn't climb up to Everest, but he climbed up to one of the great mountains. And he goes, he got on top of the mountain. He suddenly realized that, that there is a power, that there is, there is something there that is so much bigger than us. That's natural revelation. That's so why you, you see here it says, so that they are without excuse. The person who is denying God, they're without excuse. Now that's natural revelation. When you come to specific revelation, that's Jesus. And that's the apocalypse. Jesus reveals God to us. In a, in a much more specific and deeper way, he reveals the very heart of God to us. Now, natural revelation, you're not going to come to the place where you understand the very heart of God. Jesus reveals the heart of God to us. He reveals God's tenderness. Now, you go through the Gospels. You see the tenderness of Jesus. You see the compassion of God in Jesus. You, you also see him demonstrating the power as he, you know, he calms the storm, he multiplies the fish and the loaves, he raises the dead, he walks on water. The power is there. But that intimate revelation of his compassion, of his gentleness, when he raises the little girl from the dead, right? he, said, he says, Talithukumi, Little lamb, he takes the little girl, her parents devastated by the little child's death. And he lifts her up. And he says, Talitha Kumi, he says, little girl, rise. And what did he say then after she rose up? She hadn't eaten for a while. He said, give her something to eat. That's his incredible tenderness. Sometimes we have a hard time reconciling. You read through the Old Testament and sometimes you're looking, God, God can be vicious with his enemies. He's a, he's, a, he's a lion when it comes to his enemies. And then you see this incredible tenderness and love with his children, with the broken, with the distraught, with the poor who came, who came to him. And sometimes, again, we have, we have a hard time. I just want to say this to you as a father. And fathers, you will you'll be able to, I'll tell you, mothers will be able to recognize this. I am incredibly gentle. Incredibly gentle with my children. Incredibly gentle with my grandchildren. Incredibly gentle. But if you came and you threatened my family or my church, you will meet with a viciousness that you never imagined. I believe that that is the heart of God in us. We will protect. We will fight against and fight for, right? That which we love. But there is a tenderness, there is a compassion, there is a kindness that God has with those who are his. You will see in Jesus the, the passion of God, his holiness, when he goes into the temple and he throws out the sacrifice sellers, when he says the words, my father's house was meant to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. 
You'll see the majesty of God when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he shines so bright, brighter than the sun, that John and Peter and James, they couldn't, they couldn't even look. You will see the sacrificial love of God as he hangs on the cross. And it wasn't three nails that fastened him to the cross. It was love for you and for me that fastened him to the cross. And you will see his glory. His victorious, triumphant glory. The Savior who conquered. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. That is the great apocalypse. If you want to see what God is really like, you need to look at Jesus. Know Jesus. Know Jesus, know God. Know Jesus, know God. That is the great apocalypse. All right, second, the great covering. The Greek word is is crypto, the great covering. It says here, at that time Jesus prayed this prayer, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding. So you have the the great unveiling, but now is the great covering. Thank you for hiding, crypto, these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. The The word crypto means to conceal, it means to cover, it means to hide. That the very divinity, the very godliness in Jesus was hidden. His saviorship, his messiahship, they were hidden from people. Hidden from who? Well, from those who think themselves wise and clever. You know who that is? People who are filled with pride. Who think that they know it all. I mean, people like that. They think they know it all. Something I, lo- I love to do when I get somebody and they're like, oh, I know the Bible. I know, I, I know the Bible. I've read the Bible. I know the Bible. And I'll say, well, what about what it says in Hezekiah 9.17? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's no such thing as Hezekiah 9.17. Hidden from those who think themselves wise and clever. Hidden from those who think they know it all. Hidden from those who are so filled with themselves that there is no room for God in their, in their tiny little hard hearts. They can't see the truth. They can't receive it. They, they can't understand it. So when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, what is the first verse he begins with? It's, it's the opening verse to all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who know their need for God. Blessed are those who know their need for His grace, for His mercy, for His forgiveness. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it talks about, again, this person of pride. It says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. This is the person without God. This is the person, again, filled with themselves, filled with their pride. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, this is the man without the Spirit. This is foolishness to them. You ever drag someone to church who wants nothing to do with God? Well, let me tell you something. That was me back 
before I received Christ at 23 years old. Sue dragged me to church one day on Christmas Eve. Let me tell you, I sat there for like 10 minutes. I didn't want to hear it. it and it wasn't that I thought, hey, look, I didn't do what you want, live the way. That, that was my attitude. I was not against you. Be religious if you want. I don't care if you're a Muslim. I don't care if you're a Jew. I don't care if you're a Christian. I don't care if you're an atheist, an agnostic. Just go and live your life. Let me live my life. But go live your life. I don't care. But she brings me in there, and I'm sitting there, and I feel like an absolute hypocrite because I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want to, want to hear, about, hear about God. And I got up, and I, I, I walked out. I was the natural man. It was just all foolishness to me. Just a lot of mumble-jumble, yada, yada, yada. And, again, I, I was just so filled with myself that there was no room for God. Filled with my own arrogance, filled with my own superiority. So that is a picture of a person outside the church. Can people be in the church like this? So filled with pride, so filled with arrogance. What, what does it say about the last church that will appear right in church history? The church of Laodicea. Watch what is said here in Revelation chapter 3. And the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of all creation of, of, of God. is talking Jesus. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, spit you out of my mouth. And watch what he says here. He says, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Right? This is the, this, this is the person who is, again, so filled with themselves and their pride. They have no need of God. I do not need God. By the way, I'll say this to you. I've done many, many funerals and been there at the bedside of believers and unbelievers. I got to tell you something. Some of the most arrogant people I have ever met, not all, but some of the most arrogant people I have ever met, when they're laying there and they're dying and they know they're going to be around much longer and they're going to breathe their last breath within seconds, it's amazing what can happen to that person. And I've had people who wanted nothing to do with me, family members, people who have walked in and out of this church, some of your, your relatives, who when they're on their deathbed, can Pastor Frank come and visit with me? And the confessions. Now, there are people confessing to me. I said, I'm not a priest. I can't absolve you from your sins. Only Jesus can forgive you of your sins. Turn to him. And whether they do or not, I, I, I don't. I mean, pray, the, you know, pray the prayer. Um, it, it, a prayer is not going to save somebody. True repentance is what saves people and belief in Jesus Christ. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? You know what the, the first key step to healing, the first key step to recovery, the first key step to really kind of change and getting better is you must admit and be honest about where you are. And if you're not, and you, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You can't get better. You can't improve. All right, number three, the great choosing. So there, there is a, a, a theology out there that, that says that God just chooses one and he rejects the other. So there's a go called hyper-Calvinism. And there were churches that actually 
teach this. If you look at, at Matthew chapter eleven twenty seven, 27, it says, My father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the son except the father, and no one truly knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. You know when you get chosen for something? It feels good. So we had a, we had a softball game one Sunday afternoon, right when we just early years of the church, and Pastor Rich and I, Pastor Rich D'Angelo and I, Rich has gone home to be with the Lord, I was a captain, he was a captain. We had all the men and women, and we were, again, going to choose sides. And Rich got first pick, and he chose Bob LaPoma. Bobby LaPoma, when he was being born, his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, limited his oxygen, and Bobby was mentally challenged. He's the last person I would have picked. But Rich picked him first. And Bobby was so excited. And Bobby ended up playing third base that day. And you know what happens in third base? All the hard line drives come down third base. Bobby must have eaten like seven line drives or ground balls with his mouth because at the end of the day, his mouth was all swollen and bleeding. But he would not leave third base. Bobby used to do ushering here and he'd stand up. We'd say, Bobby, could you pray? And Bobby would say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for your... We called him Father. Thank you, Father, for your blessings. Thank you, Father, for all your wonderful grace that you poured out. Thank you, Father. And then he would give uh, occasionally a testimony and would say, I thank God that the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck because if it hadn't, um, he said, all my brothers are very successful and want nothing to do with God. But I've come to believe in Jesus and I have the gift of eternal life. So Richie chooses Bobby. The next day in the office, we're talking, and he goes, you know why I chose Bob? And I said, no, why? He goes, because when I was younger, I was the last kid who was always picked. Rich wasn't very athletic. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, you know, when I was younger, I was always the first kid who was picked. For all sports, football, basketball, I was, always, I was athletic. I wasn't picked first for the spelling bee, though. That's where I was picked last. <laughs> and that would have been a miracle if I was picked first. Thank the Lord for spell trek? Because I think you still see stuff that passes by me here. So, who does the son choose? That's the question. Who does he choose? Does he just say, I, you know, I want you and over you? Or And Jesus, Jesus talks about this throughout the gospel. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, it says, um, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a child is greatest in the kingdom of God. You must become like a little child. That's humility. You know what little children know? They know their need. They know their, their need. They know they're small. They know their need for life, their need for love, their need for food. My, my little grandson, and by the way, thank you all for praying for Nathaniel this week. On Wednesday, he was rushed up to the hospital. He had a seizure, running a fever of 104. He is fine. He is doing okay. He got Kaksaki virus. A little scary for a few days. Uh, but little Nathaniel, right, he comes to the house, right, he goes, he goes to the cookie closet, and he just points. 
He don't know how to say cookie yet. He loves watermelon. Oh, he loves watermelon. He'll eat, the, he'll eat like half a watermelon. The kid's crazy. He eats like, he'll go to the refrigerator. I know what he's pointing. He wants the watermelon. But he can't get it for himself. So he needs, he needs help. He's dependent. Little children, dependent upon their parents, dependent on their grandparents. That's the childlike faith. There are some things we can't do for ourselves. There's a whole lot of things we can do for ourselves. But there are a lot of things we can't do for ourselves. We can't save ourselves. You can try to be the best person in the world. You're not going to save yourself because God's standard of righteousness is so holy. And that's why Jesus came and died for us, to give us his righteousness and to enable us to receive the gift of eternal life. That's how salvation comes. The person who is childlike knows they can't save themselves. They know they need his forgiveness and they need his provisions. And again, this, this theme flows throughout the Bible. Isaiah 66, verse 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one, I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Humble, contrite. Contrite is a feeling of remorse. It's the feeling of repentance. It's knowing that you need his mercy and his grace. If you read my prayer journal every day for the last 30 years, you will see that every day I come to God and I confess my sins and I ask him for his grace and I ask him for his mercy. I ask him for his patience and I thank him for his long suffering. Any of you ever had a difficult child and you had to have some long suffering? Well, I'm a difficult child. But I know that, and I know that he loves me. Jesus told a, a, a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee is filled with his self, self-righteousness, right? He's filled with his pride. He's filled with his arrogance. And he's, he's in the temple, and he's praying, and he's saying, Lord, thank you that you didn't make me like this wretched sinner, this tax collector who's kneeling down, wouldn't even look up to God and is beating his chest. He goes, thank you that I am so righteous. I give my tithes. I do this. I do that. And the tax collector, he prays to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, which one of them do you think walked away forgiven? Which one do you think walked away righteous? It's the one who humbled himself, not the religious fanatic. The religious person so filled with their religion that, that, you know what, they can't even admit their faults and their weaknesses and their sins. All right, number four, the great invitation. So you have the great apocalypse, the great crypto, the uncovering, uh, the great covering, and then the great choosing. And so Jesus now, he gives the great invitation. He says, come to me. Come to me. Jesus said, come to me. Notice what he says here. He says, come to what? Yeah, not to a religion. He didn't say, come and join a religion or come and get involved in a ritual or come and join my church or, or, or come and join my denomination. He says, come to me. It's, it's a relationship with him. Christianity is coming into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It is coming to a place where you begin to know God. And you begin to let God get to know you. It is where you come to begin to experience God. 
and experience his love and experience his grace, experience his mercy, his healing, his peace, his joy. It's, it's knowing him. Come to me. Church can't save you. Denominations can't save you. What Jesus, people came to him and they said, we're sons of Abraham. What do you say? I can make these rocks cry out and praise me. Just, you know, they think because they belong to some religious group that that's salvation. That's not salvation. But we get with people, we get that sharing the gospel. Well, I'm, I'm an Episcopalian. God don't care. I'm a Catholic. You, 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 belonging to the Catholic Church will never save you. Jesus is the one who died for you up on the cross. He's the one who was raised. And he is the one who saves you. So he says, come, come to me. And then he says, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. All you who are weary and heavy, weary and heavy burdened from what? Can this life wear you out? Yeah? Can this life wear you down? Right? How about dealing, how about dealing with, you know, dealing with sin? And the struggles, the struggles with sin. I know what good to do, I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do when I do it. We keep burying maybe that in our subconscious mind and all of a sudden it erupts in all kinds of other things and illnesses and things. The struggles of life. Jesus is talking to people who are under the burden of the religious law. They're under this burden. It was like you have the Ten Commandments and then you have the 613 Commandments of Moses And then the Pharisees and the scribes, they created the Talmud, which becomes 27 volumes, right? Here here is the Old Testament, Tanakh. They created 27 volumes of rules and regulations. (laughs) What did Jesus do? He said, come to me. Come into a relationship with me. Let me love you. Let me heal you. Let me forgive you. Let me restore you. Love me. And then let that love live in you and love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't what he just did? He took all those rules and regulations, the 613 of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and he broke it down to two simple rules. The rule of love. Love God and love your neighbor. And then he says this, he says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you, right? There's a yoke, again, this curved piece of wood. It was called in the Old Testament all. And uh, essentially, again, it was used to make the work of the oxen easier. So the people have this concept of coming to Jesus And it's going to be so hard. Coming to Jesus, you're going to have this heavy yoke on your shoulders. That's not what it it was to make your life easier. He's on the other side. You're yoked to him. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's God almighty. He's there to make your life better. Not to make it worse, not to make it harder. Now, if you're in a church with all the rules, I can understand it's probably pretty hard. I, I, am, um, I am guilty of tearing down all the signs 
in the church. For years, people are like, well, people aren't washing their dishes. We're going to put up a sign, wash your dishes after you use them. Or clean the bathroom after you use them. I don't think we have to be told those things. If we're true Christians and we're living, I think we're going to walk around gently and we're going to clean up our messes. And, and if we don't, maybe that's something that we have to learn. Because I just think all those rules, again, all these rules just make it, make it more and more difficult to live the Christian life. And he says, and I will give you rest. And I will give you rest. Rest from what? Right? Rest from the burdens that we carry as human beings. Right now, do you see the suicide rate in teenagers? It's frightening. Suicide rate in teenagers has like quadrupled in just the last few years. We said, well, it was because of COVID. Well, COVID isn't around anymore, and this is still happening. The, the use of drugs, alcoholism, has, has just been, it's been doubling and tripling in these, in these last couple of years. People, right, they're, 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 they're trying to find rest in drugs. They're trying to find rest in alcohol. Jesus says, I will give you rest. You ever have a really good night's sleep? I had a good night's sleep last night. I had, no, you didn't. Renee didn't have a good night's sleep. I had a good night. Let me, I slept for eight and, a half, eight and a half hours last night, and I was out cold, didn't wake up once, and woke up like refreshed, energized. And I like to jump out of bed in the morning, so I do this thing where I kind of throw my legs all the way up in the air and then do a flip-flop out of the bed. But I woke up, man, ready, ready to take on the world. He offers us a rest that not only helps us to renew and refresh, but to energize us so that we could live this life and live it triumphantly and victoriously. And then he says this, let me teach you. Let me teach you. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you. Jesus invites us to come and learn from him. To learn from God. I want to read this to you. I put this together. When we don't know how to pray, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know which path to choose, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to be free, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to have peace, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to get right with God, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know who and what we are, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know what our life purpose is, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to respond to a difficult person, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to tackle a God-given assignment, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to parent a strong-willed child or respect our spouse, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to live each day with joy, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how to live victoriously, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know how, where we are going after death, Jesus says, let me teach you. And when we don't know how to treat other people, Jesus says, let me teach you. When we don't know why there's evil, pain, and suffering in this world, Jesus says, let me teach you. And when we don't know how to live a successful life, Jesus says, let me teach you. You get alone with him, you get into his word, he will teach you these things. 
and many more things. You know, there's this, this concept, and I'm a reader. You go up to my library, you see I've, I've read thousands of books through the years in my home library here, and you find little pieces to the puzzle in philosophy, psychology, science, theology, poetry. I know people, people will say, but Jesus is the missing piece to the puzzle. No, Jesus is the puzzle. He is all the pieces to the puzzle of life. He really does. I'm more sure of that after walking with him for 40 years than ever before. So here's our, here's our, our key application. Maybe you remember this if you remembered anything from the message. 5,000 plus 5,000 equals 15,000. Being yoked to Jesus makes you complete. It makes you more productive. It makes you more effective. It makes you more fruitful. It makes you more abundant in this life and the next. I'll say this to you. Everything that I have done in the last 40 years since accepting Jesus, he has made me more productive in those things. You say, whatever they are, not just not talking about preaching, not talking about prayer, I'm just talking about all things. Jesus said in John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You can do nothing. When I first read that verse, I said, well, that's not true. Because without Jesus, I was winning bodybuilding championships. I was uh, successful you know, in my career. Right? I had a good marriage. What do you mean, I, without you, I can do nothing? And you know, see, look at this. There are godless people, really godless people, who are billionaires, multimillionaires, PhD scientists, athletes. I said, an athlete, what, championship athlete? He's giving glory to Satan. <laughs> An Academy Award winning actor, right? Was giving a, he was giving glory to Lucifer. They're successful by the world standard. So what did he mean? Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, I believe he is saying, you cannot produce anything in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual life. You can produce nothing that will go on to eternity. So you may be able to become rich. You may be able to become famous. You may be able to earn multiple PhDs without Jesus. But your life, essentially at the end, will amount to nothing. In the light of eternity. Tell you this, all my degrees, my 401k, my achievements, my trophies, my awards, I ain't taking them with me. You know what I'm taking with me? Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done with Christ will last. What you do being yoked to Jesus 
is what you're going to take with you. So the great empowering yoke, have you taken his yoke upon your life? Right, what did he say? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he gives you power for living. Amen? If you haven't taken that yoke upon your life, you have the opportunity to do it this morning. I pray that you would. Most important decision you will ever make, and it's the decision that ultimately will determine your destiny. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, put your faith in him that he died for you on the cross and was raised from the dead, and open your heart that he would come in. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for your word. Love your word, Lord. Love your word. And I love you, Lord God, for all that you've done, Lord, in my life and our lives. Even this week, Lord God, how faithful you are. And Father God, I I pray, Lord God, that, Lord, just as we wrap up the service, have your way. May people be open. May they put aside their pride, their arrogance, and humble themselves before you. Become childlike, Lord, and realize that they need you. And may they open their heart, Lord Jesus, to you. Amen. Folks.